Listener Production. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. When you think of testosterone, what comes to mind? Do you conjure images of brawny individuals with arms that defy gravity, flexing like skyscrapers? I'm going to go make a protein shake. Does it stir up visions of aggression like a battle cry on the freeway? Stupid car won't work! Impatience, maybe? I've seen glaciers move faster. Testosterone's role in behaviour is still largely under scrutiny. But the hormone does have real physiological effects. My testosterone is going dancing. In men, testosterone reigns as the primary sex hormone, a superstar in far larger quantities than other hormones like estrogen. And yes, men do produce estrogen in the same way that women produce testosterone. And men owe estrogen a debt of gratitude. All that extra muscle they have... 36% more, on average, needs estrogen to develop properly. Well, looky here, a little nest of estrogen. But hormones are drama queens. Essential for the play to go on, but boy, do they love their melodrama. Too much or too little of any one can cause problems ranging from depression and hair in unwanted places to cancer. So, yeah, your endocrine system, the mechanism responsible for regulating those hormones, plays a pretty big part in your health. In women, the most notorious and prolific hormone dysregulation comes in the form of PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Heard of it before? I bet you have, because between 10 and 15% of women have it. That's almost one in eight. Oh man, I think my ovaries just winced. PCOS is a complex hormonal condition. Women with PCOS produce abnormal amounts of androgens, a.k.a. male sex hormones, a.k.a. testosterone. But that's not the only hormone running amok. There's also androstenedione, luteinizing hormone, which you might remember from episode 7 about IVF, progesterone and insulin, the hormone responsible for regulating glucose in your body. And there are four types of PCOS too. Insulin-resistant PCOS, post-pill PCOS, inflammatory PCOS, and adrenal PCOS. But here's the kicker. We don't actually know what causes PCOS. Yeah, it's a fucking head scratcher, Jerry. It's a fucking head scratcher. Fucking head scratcher. Our mate Hippocrates, who lived between 480 BC to 377 BC, once wrote, but those women whose menstruation is less than three days or is meager are robust, with a healthy complexion and a masculine appearance. Yet they are not concerned about bearing children, nor do they become pregnant. But although we've been able to recognise the characteristics of PCOS for centuries, the condition was only properly recognised after Stein and Leventhal published their pivotal paper in 1935. Androgens, specifically testosterone, was only isolated and its structure determined in the 1930s also. And now we believe that PCOS has a genetic component too. It runs in the family. The latent scientific investigation of PCOS, coupled with the enigmatic nature of hormones in general, has meant many women living with the condition are diagnosed late or not at all. 
In fact, the World Health Organization estimates that up to 70% of cases are actually undiagnosed. So how do you know if you have PCOS? And if you do have PCOS, are children off the cards forever? And is your ideal body weight always going to be out of reach? Hi, I'm Dr. Sneh Wadwani, Women's Health GP and Advocate, and this is Everything from A to V, the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. Here, we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you, and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too. But we were discussing matters of the vagina, Bruce, not the heart. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Gillian Tay. Dr. Tay is an adjunct research fellow at the Monash Centre for Health. She's an endocrinologist and a clinical academic with a research focus on PCOS, and she's here to break it all down for us. So, Gillian, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome or polycystic ovaries, these are terminologies that are thrown around quite a lot, aren't they? And they're very prominent in, in the social media you know, scenario. So what is actually, in a nutshell, what is PCOS? I'm actually kind of hoping that more people are talking about polycystic ovary syndrome, <laughs> because despite the fact that this is a condition that affects about one in eight women, I feel that it is still very, very neglected by doctors, by health professionals, by policymakers, by the government, by the researchers all over the world, compared to a lot of other Diseases that are less common, uh, even though polycystic ovary syndrome affects three times more amount of women of similar age compared to diabetes, the amount of funding we get is horrendous. But going back to your question in a nutshell, what polycystic ovary syndrome is, it is basically a hormonal disorder that has a wide range of impacts. Commonly, can it can cause acne, excessive hair growth, causing the skin disorder. It can also cause increased weight gain. Most commonly, it is widely known for female infertility, where women can have issues getting pregnant. And when they become pregnant, there is also pregnancies-related complications. And on top of that, there is also long-term mental health impacts and also cardiometabolic impact where they can affect and cause heart conditions and diabetes. And so, you know, I think people associate, you know, certainly the ladies that come into my rooms will talk about PCOS. They say, I'm, I think I might have PCOS because they have some of those symptoms, you know, either they're struggling to lose weight or they might have acne or excess hair. But, but what actually causes PCOS and what's going on in the background to lead to all these symptoms? And why do some women get it and some women don't? The Actual mechanism is very complex and multifactorial. There is a very heavy genetic component to the condition, and uh, you can definitely see that there is family clustering. So if a woman has PCOS, it is very likely that the daughter or the direct female relative would have much higher chance of being diagnosed with PCOS as well. The problem is even though uh, you have the underlying genetic risk, there is also epigenetics being involved. These means environmental factors. These environmental factors can occur 
in utero, which means that when your mother's pregnant, what your mother is being exposed to when you're still in the womb. After you are born, there is also environmental factors like lifestyle, stress factors. These all impact on the hormonal expressions in the body. And that's why not everyone in the family will get the condition. So the current understanding is that there are two key hormonal disturbances in PCOS. Number one is insulin resistance. So this is commonly what people get when they develop diabetes. And the second hormone disturbance is due to hyperandrogenism, which means that the women's ovaries are making more androgens or testosterones like the male hormones. And these cause women to grow the unwanted hair. And also it can stop the ovary from releasing aches in the menstrual cycle. And so when we talk about that, the issue is, I guess, that women don't have to have both of those components, do they? They they can just have one without the other. Is that right? That is correct. The condition is very heterogeneous, meaning that the symptoms will vary from one person to another person. And also their symptoms can vary across the lifespan. So When a woman is younger, they may have more problems with irregular periods, more problems with uh, acne and excessive hair growth. But later on in life, they'll be more concerned about diabetes, heart problems. And so does it follow then, given that we're looking at insulin as a factor here, that if you've got a family history of diabetes, that you're automatically predisposed to PCOS? Or is that different entirely? They are probably different. Both For both PCOS and diabetes, they are polygenic um, disorders, meaning that multiple genes are involved. It's not a direct gene that you inherit from one of your parents and then you'll definitely get the condition. So it is probably there's a lot of factors playing in to cause that. There will be some women who are slim and within the normal healthy body weight. And these women tend to only present to the doctors when they have difficulty getting pregnant. And that's when people get diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome and have been trying for a long time and they couldn't get pregnant. I think because a lot of the symptoms PCOS have overlaps with other conditions. For example, when I say that they have mental health impacts, it's mainly depression, anxiety. They can be presenting with eating disorders. People may not realise that they are related to PCOS at all. So PCOS may be diagnosed at a later stage. And can we just unravel that a little bit? So how does the mental health component work? Is it is it a consequence of you know all the symptoms of PCOS? that the mental health problems arise or is it an actual, you know, one of the one of the symptoms that someone may experience as part of the PCOS because of perhaps these hormonal changes? I think you're going to hear me say that it's multifactorial <laughs> to a lot of your questions. So there's answer. not one answer, right? <laughs> a lot of the symptoms of PCOS, such as excessive hair growth around the face, increasing weight gain, acne, even infertility, this challenge the, the norm of what a woman needs to present themselves in a, in a normal society. And this can give them extra stress yeah. and that can cause psychological distress and increase their anxiety and depression risk. However, 
when they look at mechanistic studies, there are definitely an impaired hormonal regulation for cortisol, which is the stress hormone level in the body, and also higher androgen levels, which is the male hormone, has been linked with mood disorders like more stress, having more anger, management problems. So there's hormonal components to that as well. There is also, again, environmental factors because very few studies have looked at exposure to childhood trauma experience. And it has shown that women with PCOS tend to have exposure to more family members who have been diagnosed with a mental illness. There is no simple Mm. answer in PCOS, unfortunately. And that's why progress in research has been so slow, because it's very hard to really decipher all these complexities Mm. it has. And I guess is that that why it's it's so difficult to diagnose women? You know, you, you said yourself, you know, that society paints this picture of of what a woman should look like, what her menstrual cycle should be like. And I guess women in general, they're they're all on a range, right? No no one is that typical all the time. But identifying yourself as a female with something that is deviates, I guess, significantly from that norm might be a barrier to coming to seek help. So why do you think it, it is often that the diagnosis is made quite late? The diagnosis is very challenging medically because, as we mentioned before, PCOS is a syndrome, meaning that there is no one single diagnostic test that we can do that confirms that, yes, you have PCOS. It actually requires a cluster of signs and symptoms. So currently, the international guideline requires PCOS to have two out of the three features. Number one is irregular menstrual cycles, which is uh, ovulatory dysfunction. Number two is hyperandrogenism, which you can do and diagnose this using a blood test, or patients can present with clinical acne or very bad excessive hair growth. And number three, you need to show some signs of ovular follicular excess, which means you have a lot of immature eggs in your ovaries. This can be diagnosed with either using an ultrasound or now the latest guideline shows that you can also diagnose it using a AMH level, which indicates how many follicles you have in your ovaries. So you need two out of these three features that I mentioned. And each woman, the symptoms can come and go and vary in time. So sometimes you may not be able to capture everything in one go. You may have to wait for a few months and then test the menstrual cycle or test the ultrasound again. And the symptoms can also very easily be mistaken for other conditions. So irregular menstrual, it's so common, especially during the adolescence years when a woman just starts to reach that age of monarchy. And also, I think one other challenge to diagnosing PCOS is that I think a a lot of people still feel that menstrual cycle is a little bit of taboo. It's not something that they like to discuss it with their doctors. And even when women discuss, oh, you know, I think I've got some excessive hair growth, I've got acne, they often get dismissed Mm -hmm. by the doctors, unfortunately. So there are multiple challenges why women will be diagnosed late. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, Just to clarify for our listeners, the AMH is that blood test that we've talked about in previous episodes that often is used to look at fertility, really. But it can be used in this scenario to look at when the ovaries, I guess, are producing more than the average number of of follicles. And that leads me quite nicely onto the terminology. So, of course, this is called polycystic ovarian syndrome. So all my patients come in thinking they've got these wacky 
looking great cysts on their ovaries and they're not cysts, are they? No, so you're absolutely right, Sneha. So polycystic ovary syndrome is a misnomer. So what they really mean by the cyst is the extra immature follicles that I've mentioned in the ovaries. When they have so many immature follicles that is packed up in the ovaries, they look like cysts when someone do an ultrasound and look at them. So they look like little bags, but they're actually not cysts, which where cyst just means that this is a fluid-filled sac, and that's not what it is in PCOS. And the other thing I hear a lot of is I see a lot of women coming in with painful periods, and they think this is associated with PCOS. And, and it's often difficult, isn't it? Because I know I've certainly investigated a lot of women initially thinking about whether this could be endometriosis or another reason for the pain. And I send them off for a scan and it looks like it might be polycystic ovaries. Um, Now, do polycystic ovaries actually cause pain? I think women with polycystic ovary syndrome can present with painful periods, but this is not a key clinical feature of PCOS. So it's definitely not diagnostic. So it hasn't been researched a lot, but Painful periods is so common. I would not be surprised if a woman with PCOS also suffer from painful periods. Yeah, absolutely. So completely different and completely different treatments. And so I guess if you're a a female who's concerned that something might be going on because you're perhaps carrying a bit more weight than you think you should be, you might have a bit of excess hair and the doctor, you know, sort of runs all the tests and the ovaries look okay. Is that the end of the story or could there still be something else going on? At the moment, PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So you always need to make sure that you rule out other causes that can contribute to the condition that you have. So for example, for irregular periods, there are other primary diseases to look out for, including thyroid problems. They can also have congenital adrenal hyperplasia where they also can have androgen excess. There is also hyperprolactinemia, which is also another very, very common cause of irregular periods. So one of the common questions I get asked, Gillian, is what happens to my hormones, right? The first thing I get asked is, Doc, I think my hormones are out of balance. And I always find this a bit of a misnomer anyway, because it's often that the hormones are fluctuating all the time. I describe them as little messengers going from one organ to another organ. And so when we take tests, we're only ever looking at a snapshot in time. But I guess a lot of patients want to know what happens to those hormones, you know, what controls how they're expressed or not expressed. That's a big question, isn't it, (laughs) (laughs) So. The hormones do not stay in our body forever. So there'll be little enzymes or proteins that would degrade the different types of hormones once they have set their message, if you like. So for example, for insulin, its main purpose is to tell the body to absorb sugar from the blood. So once it's attached itself to the body cell to say that, hey, you need to absorb some of the sugar in the bloodstream, it will actually get engulfed by the body cell and then digest it and then send out to the rest of the body again. That's how most of the hormones get degraded in the body by different proteins and enzymes. How these hormones communicate with each other, 
uh, or how these chemicals in the body communicate with each other, depending on what their purpose is. Taking insulin for an example again, when your body detects that there is high level of sugar in your bloodstream, the pancreas will start releasing more insulin hormone. And once the sugar levels starts to come down to a normal stage, the pancreas will get that message and stop making so much insulin. And at the same time, the liver will start secreting another type of hormone to stop insulin from secreting and also make sure that the sugar level is stable. The human body is extremely complex with lots and lots of hormones floating around. So in PCOS, the main hormones other than insulin, we mentioned before, there is androgens in the body, which is the male hormones. There is also estrogens and progesterone, which is the the female reproductive hormones floating all over around. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that little body, right? <laughs> when when we're talking about and even yes. the simplest of functions, actually. So I guess there's no wonder that sometimes things might not run quite according to plan. But one of the most common concerns I hear when I see patients is that they think they're never going to have children if they've got PCOS. And how much truth is there to that? I mean, I know there's stuff we can do to help them, but it doesn't necessarily equate to infertility, does it? Women with PCOS can definitely, definitely get pregnant. They may have a little bit more trouble, but you're absolutely right. With the right modern medical treatment, they can absolutely have children. And research has shown that women with PCOS, with the right support, they, the likelihood of them having children is just as much as women without PCOS. One of the message I always try to tell women is actually... Even though women with PCOS have irregular periods or they may not have periods, they should always use contraception if they do not want to get pregnant. Because not having regular periods doesn't mean that you are not ovulating. It's just that the ovulation is a lot more unpredictable. (laughs) That's one thing I always tell them. The other thing is that if a woman with PCOS do want to get pregnant, they should try to have a family plan and discuss it with their local doctor starting early to say, you know, I'm now in a stable relationship. I'm thinking I might want to start getting pregnant next year or the year before, or I'm thinking about when I need to start having a family. Because having early family planning is so important for PCOS. Number one, PCOS is related to a lot of cardiometabolic condition. It's associated with weight gain. So weight gain, hypertension, tension, diabetes, this needs to be screened and better managed to optimize the chance of women falling pregnant and having a safe and healthy pregnancy. Also, the length to try to have children, you can start with ovulation induction, just by simple losing weight, taking simple oral medications to induce, or on a later stage, you may want to have IVF. So having this all planned early um, so you know what to expect is very important. I think it's important to highlight there, though, that you know, medication, IVF, they're not the only treatments, right? There's lots of things we can be doing beforehand to optimize a woman's ability to A, manage her PCOS and B, also fall pregnant. Perhaps we should talk a little bit about that, you know, the kind of the different treatment approaches in this space, because some of them are lifestyle and some of them are medication, right? So, The reason why women with PCOS struggle with falling pregnant is because of the irregular periods. For women who are overweight, losing weight can help them to restore their periods. And that alone sometimes can help with them being successful in getting pregnant. 
it all comes down to the underlying hormone disturbance, as we were mentioned. Both hyperandrogenism and insulin resistance can reduce ovulation rate. Losing weight, we know, helps to reduce both insulin resistance and also reduce hyperandrogenism. So any form of treatment that helps with weight loss, including lifestyle, as we've mentioned, diet and exercise, with anti-obesity medications, and also even bariatric surgery, losing that weight will help women ovulate a little bit. Now, for women who are not overweight and they would like to try to get ovulation, giving metformin, which is an anti-diabetic medication because it's an insulin sensitizer, that alone may be enough to help them regulate their, their periods again. I guess after lifestyle, weight loss and metformin, the third step is actually to start thinking about using ovulation induction therapies. So people would have heard about clomiphene citrate or letrozole, which is now the first-line ovulation induction medication in PCOS. That would be the third step. But once you need to get into ovulation induction therapy, I would suggest that you need to seek help from a fertility specialist because they do require multiple monitoring to prevent multiple pregnancies. And they can also discuss with you what to do once you fail that step. Absolutely. If you fail that step. (laughs) And hopefully you won't because something will work before then. That's the hope. Certainly, if we're going down the route of ovulation induction, you know, GPs would generally refer on at that point. But things like the lifestyle approach and metformin, you know, your family doctor can prescribe those quite safely. Um, and, And metformin, even though it's a drug used in diabetes, it doesn't cause these massive crashes in sugar and make people feel unwell. It's generally widely pretty well tolerated, isn't it? Yes. So metformin has been used for more than 40 years now. And the main side effect it has is gastrointestinal. So patients can have nausea and loose stools, which is the most common. However, if we try to start with a low dose and titrate it up slowly, that usually is quite self-limiting and patients ended up being able to tolerate Also, a lot of GPs and family practitioners, they are very good at prescribing weight loss medications and other weight loss therapies as well. Once women start to lose weight, their ovulation actually starts coming back quite quickly. One of the new things that the guideline is also emphasizing is that if a woman is on any form of anti-obesity treatment or they went through with bariatric surgery, they need to be aware that After bariatric surgery, they probably shouldn't get pregnant for at least 12 months because their weight needs to stabilize first before they get pregnant. Otherwise, the risk of baby growing very small in the body is very, very high. And if they're on anti-obesity medications, their use in pregnancy has never been really studied. So they really need to hold off the anti-obesity medications for a few months trying to get conceived. And and so commonly, I think back in the day, I don't do this very much, but I know that there are GPs who still do this, where there is a probable or a possible diagnosis of PCOS. To regulate a person's cycle, often the patient will be put on the oral contraceptive pill. Now, I think obviously there's reasons for this if they need a contraception and they want to use the pill as a, as a contraceptive option in that space. But is there any evidence to support the use of the combined oral contraceptive pill for people with PCOS? Is there any particular benefit or negative in that space? 
There is definitely evidence of using oral contraceptive pills in women with PCOS, but not everyone with PCOS should be on the oral contraceptive pills. It really depends what you are trying to achieve. Combined oral contraceptive pills have the following benefits in PCOS. Number one, regulating the periods. Number two, it helps to reduce androgen levels in the body. So the clinical acne Excessive hair growth tend to improve quite significantly in women. And number three, it provides some endometrial protection from endometrial cancer and PCOS. So these are the three main reasons to prescribe women with combined oral contraceptive pills. However, let's say that a woman with PCOS, she's not so worried about the irregular periods. In fact, she likes not having so much periods at all, and she doesn't have too much facial acne or hirsutism, which is excessive hair growth. They very well choose not to be on the combined oral contraceptive pills. I think that's really important. And you touched on something else there that I think is often overlooked. As you say, some women women with PCOS don't menstruate very regularly and they quite like that you know they don't want us to fix that problem but there are certain things we should be monitoring in that space right around the thickness of the endometrium because we're then not shedding it every month yes so the thought is that if women with PCOS they don't menstruate very regularly the endometrium lining becomes extremely thick and that can increase risk of hyperplasia or mutation in the uterine lining so the current thought is that we should try to get women with PCOS to menstruate at least 3 to 4 times a year And that can be used with either combined oral contraceptive pills or if the woman has a contraindication to that progestin only pill or a intrauterine device can also be utilized for the endometrial protection. Again, I want to emphasize that we do not have to only use combined oral contraceptive pills. And I think when we're looking at those intrauterine devices or IUDs or coils or whatever we all call them, we're talking about the hormonal ones, right? So the ones with progesterone in them that keep that lining of the womb nice and thin and stop it from getting really thick. I think one of the hot topics for women with PCOS is that worry about the weight, right? If they're carrying excess weight or they don't feel comfortable in their weight and and they really worry that they're never going to be able to lose weight. Is that actually true? There is thought that women... That was a big sigh, Gillian. (laughs) It is because weight is... We know that weight is not a cause of PCOS, but weight is a risk factor for PCOS. The hormonal imbalances probably do make it harder for women to lose weight, but there are also other mechanisms and other hormones being involved. So there has been a lot of research that's been looking at other types of hormones that regulates weight in women, including the appetite, the hunger, the reward system in the brain. They also look at the energy expenditure in the body. But all these studies so far has shown quite conflicting results, so there is no definite yes or no. It has been shown in well-researched setting where there is lots and lots of supports where patients get regular counselling, follow-up with dietitian and exercise physiologist support. Women with PCOS can very well lose weight as much as women without PCOS. But we also know that these are not sustainable because there is no such support available long-term for women in the community. So when women lose weight in the research program, after a few months, they put on the weight back again. 
However, we do know that women with PCOS can lose weight, as the research has shown. It's just that currently the health system and the public system, we haven't had a good support system for them for it to maintain their weight long term. And also women with PCOS, it's not just about them losing weight. There's a lot of other supportive things to consider about, which also includes mental health. Mm. So if a woman is depressed or has anxiety, they are going to be less motivated to look after themselves and living, eating well, exercising regularly. I also have women with body image disorders. They do not like the way people look at them when they exercise. That's the reason why they do not want to exercise. So there's a lot of other factors that needs to be considered for us to be able to support a woman to lose weight. Mm. I think, you know, you've highlighted so beautifully in our chat today that the real deficiencies in in funding and and research in the PCOS space. If you were to summarise, what are the gaps that exist currently for for women, you know, for their care if they have PCOS? How can we make it better? (laughs) There's too many, too many gaps. But I think from what we have now to make the best out of it, we should try to raise awareness and education about PCOS in both health professionals and also women. I know that some patient advocacy groups in other countries, they are trying to educate PCOS in childhood education Mm. when children learn about menstruation in schools so that they know that PCOS is very common and having a regular menstrual cycle is something that you need to talk to your doctor about. Uh, doctors also need to be educated about PCOS. You may remember in the whole of your medical school, maybe you have one lecture if you're lucky about PCOS. True. <laughs> if I was lucky, maybe half a lecture, right? <laughs> and uh, It's a good job I like women's health. <laughs> and they have also two years ago a research that shows that the Ops and Gynae residency in US, they only get about five minutes to talk about PCOS and that's it. Wow. So the wow. education of health professionals is extremely low and that needs to change. So as part of the guideline, they also have a lot of translation efforts being put into it. So we have a accredited PCOS education program for health professionals. And for the women, we need to try to ensure that they have access to accurate and reliable information that is evidence-based. As you know, in the social media, there is a lot of misinformation, unfortunately. So as part of the guideline tools, it is freely available. There are resources and information booklets to give to women with PCOS as well. A lot of women they end up looking out for information on the internet and online because they do not have access to the right information from the local doctors. You know, often GPs like myself, you know, we're in a 10-minute, 15-minute consultation. We might just touch the surface of it in the first one, in the first appointment that that a patient has with us. And that's really important because we're on a journey together and it's impossible to cover everything off in that 15 minutes and give you the diagnosis there and then. It's just not going to happen. So I think there needs to be commitment on both sides. What I would say is that, I mean, obviously I'm biased, I'm a women's health GP, but there's plenty of us out there. And I think for women who are struggling with this, who feel like they've not been investigated properly, they feel like they've been dismissed, or they feel like they haven't really understood the diagnosis or what can be done for them, it is a matter of seeking out that help from people who are in the know. There's plenty of women's health GPs out there. They are 
more accessible now than than perhaps before. And if you're not getting the right answer or or the answer that you're comfortable with from your usual GP, then go find someone else, right? Definitely. I feel uncomfortable saying that, but thank you. Yes, you need to find a GP <laughs> that you can trust and cares about. <laughs> Absolutely. And Gillian, you know, when that patient wants a referral on, I know some of my colleagues struggle with this, with PCOS. Does the patient go to a gynae or do they go to an endocrinologist? There is a lot of overlap with the two. And I think that's why things are challenging in management of PCOS as well. I think it would depend what is the first goal, the primary goal of the patients getting treatment. So if this is someone who has been trying to get pregnant for five years and couldn't get pregnant, I think ONG because there is limited time. Get them pregnant. Yes, send them to the ONG first. But if this is someone that you've just diagnosed and there is no immediate plans for family, starting a family, maybe an endocrinologist is a better choice. ONG doctors tend to care more about the reproductive issues. And and that that is rightly so because the health systems, there's such time constraints for them. Whereas PCOS, there is a lot of longer term psychological and cardiometabolic impact that we need to screen for diabetes, heart conditions and all those things, which a lot of the times general practitioners do a very good part of. But if women are wanting a little bit more to say that, look, I've struggled a little bit more with weight loss, I need a little bit of extra help. Yeah, maybe a specialist opinion will uh, be more beneficial with an endocrinologist. Fantastic. I think we'll just leave with one thing. What's the one thing you wish all women with PCOS could know? I think they need to know that it's not all about infertility. They can definitely get pregnant. And it's not something that we just need to lose weight for. (laughs) I think that's fantastic advice. (laughs) Thanks, Gillian. It was great to chat to you today. Not a problem. So there you go. Having PCOS is a complex hormonal condition that impacts each woman with the condition differently. The road to parenthood might be a little bit longer and it might include an extra few steps, but it is possible. And the same applies for weight control too. Having a health professional on your side who wants to help you achieve your goals is important when it comes to the management of PCOS. And there are doctors out there who can help, so don't give up. That's it for the first season of Everything from A to V. If I've helped just one of you feel a little bit more confident about achieving your health goals, then my job here is done. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Sneh Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener.